Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. On oil, I have a couple of observations which are inconclusive. Clearly, there's a fair amount of Ukraine and the price of oil because if we were serious about sanctions, we would put enough of sanctions on Russian banks by excluding them from the SWIFT system, which all banks use, so that the Russian exports from Russia would decline precipitously. And I think that's worth at least $10 a barrel on the current price. So if you wanted to own an oil stock you'd identified, I definitely give it a couple of more weeks because I think the uh, the price of oil will be lower. And while it, it won't have the same impact on the 23 and 24 prices, it will certainly affect the stock price, I think. Now, I have something else I want to cover on oil that is inconclusive. Got to do some more thinking about it and digging. But we're going to talk later about batteries. And not only uh, usage in in uh, utility batteries, but also in cars. And there is a set of circumstances. I'm going to put out some numbers here, which between Mike and myself, we will check. But I think there are about 250 million cars on the road in the United States, incredibly large number. And I think there are about 100 and 20 to 25 million households. There's 320 million of us. And so that's a lot of households for 320 million people, but I think that's right. So if you divide the number of cars by the number of households, on average, that's two cars per household. We sell about 16, 17 million new cars a year, and cars include SUVs. I think they include pickup trucks. Not sure about that, but I think that's right. And it's pretty clear, I think, that we're headed towards about a third of the cars. They may be as many as 5 million cars a year, cars and light trucks with batteries over, say, eight years. Let's just use 2030, you know, eight years from now. You would expect that of the 250 million cars, I kind of assume in eight years, they'll still be this more or less the same number of households and same number of cars. You'll have at least 40 million households with one battery car or truck and one gas car or truck. So then the question becomes, gasoline demand is determined by road miles. To the extent that cars get a little more efficient, the road miles go up more than, or you don't have an exact correlation, but it's pretty darn close. And if 40 million of our 250 million cars in 2030 are electric, what is that going to do to oil demand? Well, half of the barrel on a worldwide basis, goes into gasoline. 
So it's hard for me to imagine that. And now we've just been talking the United States. We're not talking China, India, very large populations. But we are talking about trends that I think we can expect in Europe, the United States, or North America generally, and Japan. It's hard for me to imagine, given those statistics, that oil demand in 2030 is going to be still growing. In fact, I think at some point, oil demand will stop growing and will start to decline. Maybe not at a very quick rate, but it will decline. So the question on oil pricing eight years from now is, if demand for oil is declining, what will happen to the price? And that is normally the, the easy answer is, well, the price will be lower. Whatever the price is in 22, you can expect a lower price as demand declines in 2030. I think that may be too quick a conclusion because every company from the very large companies to the smaller companies and with large companies, I'm going to include you know, sovereign companies, state-owned companies like Saudi Aramco, Rosneft in Russia, Petrobras in Brazil, the three Chinese companies that are Chinese, you know, owned by the government or partly owned by the government, all of them will be doing something that is clear now and I think will become even clearer during the intervening time. They are investing in projects where you spend the money this year and start to see new oil production from that money spent later this year or next year. They're very reluctant to take on projects where, you know, in deep water or in a remote area where you spend money for a couple of years and you don't start to see cash flow for three years till the third year or the fourth year. Just not doing that. And what that means is that supply is conceivable, not a prediction, but it's conceivable that by the time we get to the turn of the decade, 2030, that oil supply will be going down faster than oil demand. We spend five, you know, 10 minutes on oil and gas because that's something I know a lot about. Obviously, I'm going to be spending more time on this, and in future Wednesdays, we'll spend more time on it. There's an interesting, somewhat comparable situation going on in natural gas, and I think if I went through natural gas today, we would chew up too much time. I'll try to remember to to light on oil next Wednesday and get into natural gas for the first 10 minutes or so of the call next Wednesday. With that, the other commentary I'd like to make, which, again, I think I said last Wednesday and maybe the Wednesday before, it should be the case that the 10-year base rate in our economy should be the inflation rate plus one to two percentage points. At seven or eight percent inflation, for consumer price index, producer's price index, it's hard to imagine, even though it may come down over the course of 22, it'll get down to 2%. Well, so if you have a 2% inflation rate, which seems unattainable now, plus one and a half points, that gets you to three and a half percentage points. If you have 3% inflation rate, uh, that would get you to four and a half. It doesn't look as though anyone who 
buys bonds, runs bond portfolios, uh, is an economist who tries to advise people on fixed income investing, is predicting anything like that. They're predicting that the 10-year bond, even with fairly high inflation, is going to stay in the 2% range, maybe 2.5%. Now, what they're counting on is past patterns where you start to have a slowing economy, you have tightening by the Fed, your ratio of of 2% of two-year bonds to 10-year bonds shrinks, which has happened. It's like 60 basis points now. So maybe they're right. If they're right, I think it's a better environment to hold and purchase stocks. If we can count on these bond investors and economists who study this part of the capital market are right, seems illogical to me that you'd have 7% inflation maybe declining to 3% and still have negative interest rates on the 10-year bond. But I kind of monitoring this, reading the paper, listening to people expound on this on news channels like Bloomberg, nobody is predicting that. So the potential impact on equity valuations, I believe if the 10-year bond is still in the two or two and a half percent range by the middle of the summer, the end of the summer, the end of the year, I don't think it's something you have to worry about as an equity investor. But I don't it seems illogical to me, but then I've never owned a bond. I'm not an economist. I don't believe in fixed income investing. So maybe the people that, that do this full time are right. For the moment, I'm just going to suspend judgment on that issue. And with that, I think we want to swing into batteries. Just by way of introduction, Mike knows a lot more about this, and Mike is going to know more about it next week and the week after and the week after that. But by way of introduction, we have spent the last six years investing and trying to figure out how to make money by doing utility-scale batteries under the theory that with more wind and solar, a Yorktown effort, with more wind and solar, there's more variability, and there should be a place for batteries to, say, absorb power at 12 o'clock when the wind is blowing and the sun is high and discharge power, you know, say at 8 or 9 o'clock when the sun is drawn down and maybe the wind stops blowing. And that should be a good business. It's based on our experience, and not only our experience, but comparing our experience to other people doing this, it's not a very good business. I mean, it's uh, at best... Uh, single-digit, high single-digit rate of return. And it's a high single-digit rate of return, whether you're doing it on a merchant basis, which means you're taking whatever that is in the market, or you're doing it on a regulated basis. The reason it doesn't get to be more than a high single-digit rate of return on a regulated basis is on a regulated basis, your utility has their rates regulated, and you're limited to recovering your interest rate on your debt, and generally the the regulator assumes that you should be about half equity and half debt. So they give you like an eight or nine percent return on your equity. Now it is an after tax return, I will admit that, but that isn't going to compound your money at fifteen percent a year. You double your money at over five years, those kind of returns aren't doing it. 
before the call, and I haven't had a chance other than to flip the pages, I uh, got myself a copy of uh, the Tesla 10Q, or actually it's the 10K now. What a, it does have free cash flow in Tesla. I kicked myself for you know not spending time on it because it actually is working on a cash flow basis, subject to a closer read this weekend. It's working. And I'll have a, a couple of sentences on that next Wednesday. But Mike has been spending time. We know from our effort here that the best battery manufacturer, if you want to try to make money that way, is two Chinese companies, CATL and BYD. Ten years ago, the best was Panasonic, and then for a while, the best was LG Chem. But the two Chinese companies clearly have a lead. Our efforts to put utility-scale batteries in, almost always the supplier of the batteries is CATL. And with that, over to you, Mike. Okay, so where to start here as far as batteries go? As Hunt said, one of the challenges is, is the, the leaders in this industry are Chinese. I mean, we actually talked about variable interest entities and investing in China and how could one get comfortable with investing in China. I've been spending a bit of time over the course of the last few months reading up on and trying to understand investors that do invest over there to see whether a simpleton like myself could get comfortable with investing there. And the few that I've referenced are Dalio from Bridgewater. And the other one that's sort of interesting who happened to have their annual meeting today is Charlie Munger. They had the Daily Journal annual meeting. And I will send out a link to that video with the our weekly email because it's very similar to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting and he just provides very candid and direct responses to questions from readers and there's a lot of content there on China. So skipping that that topic for now as far as uh, investing abroad, let's dive into the batteries a little bit. As Hunt said, there's a whole bunch of different players, but what's been really impressive is CATL and their rise to prominence um, if you will, in this market. They supply a number of different automotive manufacturers, including Tesla. They've minted the most billionaires in China per for one company. I think the number is something like nine. So it's a pretty exciting company. I think it's worth taking a look at, all that is to say. The second company that Hunt mentioned that we seem to really like is BYD. And BYD is interesting because they actually make cars, but they also make batteries. And their battery technology is probably the most exciting of the stuff that I've read about. Tesla seems to be doing some work with them now as well. This market is changing very quickly. There's new technologies, new battery designs. It is advancements in the chemistry of batteries, advancements in the manufacturing. And the similarity and the reason why I've found this area very attractive is that there's a lot of similarities to semiconductors. Battery manufacturing is difficult, especially to get right on a very large scale. And semiconductor manufacturing is similarly, although far more difficult in a lot of respects. You could probably make a case that the industry may become sort of integrated in a similar way to the semiconductor industry. But when it comes to looking at where to invest, it's hard to argue with the fact that China is likely going to be a leader in this. And that's mainly because of their willingness to tolerate relatively dirty industries 
where we don't seem to be willing to do so. So I'll pause there, Hunt, because you may have some different views on that. Well, I agree with all that. One of the things the Chinese have done, just to give Mike a chance to catch his breath, is uh, cobalt has been an important ingredient in batteries up till now. Whether it's Tesla, CATL, BYD, or anyone else, Chinese or Korean or Japanese, people are trying to do batteries with less cobalt. And the reason for that is cobalt primarily comes from the Congo. And it's just a terrible place. I'm sure you've seen pictures or articles of uh, these holes in the ground. I mean, just really terrible uh, use of child labor because their shoulders are skinnier and they can get down in these holes. And it's just awful. And not only that, but the Congo is just an incredibly corrupt place. The Chinese have, and Glencore, a trading firm, basically control the source of cobalt in the Congo. It comes as a byproduct from copper mining, not all copper mining, but the copper that's mined in, in the Congo. And uh, that cobalt is refined there or moved up to a concentrate and taken to China. So, for example, as Volkswagen, I guess Volkswagen is the largest or the second largest car company in the world a few years ago, was just totally panicked about supply of cobalt. And what they realized is that the, the Chinese were just going to be in such a commanding position because of their position in cobalt. The other key product for lithium-ion batteries is nickel. Nickel's more available, and uh, but still important to control that. As far as lithium goes, lithium, if you give the industry enough time, the kind of this, the way to say it, I guess, is the Saudi Arabia of lithium is Argentina and Chile, and these are salt flats at altitude, a mile up or more. And the reason it takes time is it's pretty capital intensive. But Albemarle is a company that's in the lithium business. And we've worried about lithium because the other way to find lithium is in rock. And that activity happens in Canada and Quebec and eastern Ontario and Australia. And there's one lithium project we've seen in Brazil, which looks pretty interesting. But the problem with taking lithium from rock, or it's called spongamine, what the miners call it, is in the long term, it's not going to compete very well against those salt flats in uh, Argentina and Chile and Bolivia. You're relatively high cost. You'll be okay because the demand for lithium is so high that the projects being developed in Chile and Argentina won't be able to catch up with demand. Eventually, they will. The other issue, though, with lithium is that I'm going to get over my head here. I'll probably misstate something, which Mike can correct. But someone like CATL and BYD are working hard on trying to not only do batteries without cobalt, but also do batteries without lithium. And with that, I'm going to go back to Mike because uh, I'm getting uh, whatever sport you want. I'm either taking over by skis or a deep water or on the wrong side of a wind shift or whatever. But back over to Mike. 
good analogies there, because it's very easy to get on the wrong side of the shift, if you will, on this stuff. So again, similar to semiconductors, because it does take a bit of research to really start to understand what's going on. The technology that I found really interesting that's coming out of uh, CATL and in general seems to have some relatively strong support is sodium ion technologies. The reason I find it so interesting is one, it eliminates some of these these metals that are necessary in other battery designs. And two, some of the technologies being used to optimize future battery designs are some artificial intelligence technologies. So the concept is by using artificial intelligence models, they can design new chemistries by optimizing the inputs to these sodium ion batteries. Sodium ion is not as energy dense as a lithium ion. So you're probably not going to see them sold in the USA. However, you will probably see them in vehicles sold in China. Probably also see that technology in, and again, I may be overstepping here and Hunt can correct me. You will probably also see that technology in infrastructure scale batteries because the lack of energy density is not as important in those cases. Yeah, I think that is a good point. I think this is a good point to close up, but we'll continue this next week. I'll do gas. I have some important developing views on natural gas, which are not negative or positive. It's just different from oil. I can't, to tell you the truth, having done this for a long time, I can't decide. (laughs) I can't pick oil versus gas, but gas is different, but we'll get into that next week. But in the interim, to the extent any of us wanted to get up the curve on CATL and BYD and LG Chem, the Korean company, it, it seems to me in thinking about investing in a Chinese company, which I've never done, two things is how do you acquire the shares and you know and that kind of thing. But the other thing is information. You know how reliable is their the information that they, I know Alibaba and Baidu and, and Tencent and whatnot, I think file U.S. reports. I'm not sure of that. And of course, there's a push amongst by the communist China, well, the leadership of China to uh, de-emphasize filing in the U.S. because they think it gives us more leverage over their economy and to prefer filings in Shanghai or, or in Hong Kong. One of the things that occurs to me, and then we'll, we'll we'll get into more of this next Wednesday, is that if we know we know that battery cars are going to have an impact. Speaking for myself, I hope others on the phone were were more uh, alert. We just kind of missed Tesla. I think Tesla's up I don't know fifty or a hundred times or something since it came public. Uh, is there a way to invest in this area? without buying shares of a Chinese company. And that's a, that's a, that's a pretty good task for the next uh, uh, seven days uh, before next Wednesday, and uh, we'll work hard on that. In the meantime, everyone stay well. Don't get spooked by uh, all the ups and downs in the stock market. I, I, think, I think this is turning into an opportunity time rather than the time to be worried. Take care. We'll talk next Wednesday. Bye-bye.
Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. 